Welcome, travelers. We're aware that your journey was difficult, but prepare to have your questions answered, for you have been granted an audience with the Masters of Modern. And welcome back to Masters of Modern. I am your host, Alex Kessler, here with my co-host, Ben Bateman. What's going on, everybody? And today we have Eric Weiditz joining us. You are a recent Pro Tour player person, and you also work at Mattel. That I am. Fun things. So Eric designs super cool toys and, and has a really, like, kind of a, a picturesque life. He gets to uh, design things that people love and, and live a cushy life in California. So that's pretty, pretty sweet. Yeah, you know, it's kind of funny because when I tell people what I do, if you're a toy designer, game designer, I kind of get the same three responses every time. And at the top of that list is always like, oh, so it's just like that movie Big. And <laughs> you're like, it's exactly like that yeah. movie Big. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I hate to, to burst the bubble, but corporate America still is a lot of work and boring meetings, despite the fact that you're working on toys. So today, you know, we're in kind of the middle period between the ban list coming out and the Pro Tour, and Modern's been shaken up. And I, we're going to kind of avoid doing hardcore modern strategy stuff until the Pro Tour happens, because A, we're going to end up doing like a bunch of episodes right after that about that subject, and B, no one really knows what's going on other than a bunch of pros that are locked in cabins in the middle of the woods right now testing out the new format, and we don't want to give you the wrong information. Sure. So today, we are going to be going over, we mentioned it before a few times, there's a, a different format that's competitive, and you know, modern mas- Masters of Modern is about playing competitively more than it is even about modern and so this is a casual competitive format that we play a lot in our in our free time and we kind of wanted to explain it to you guys and what it's about the reason eric is here is because you are one of the inventors of the format that is correct so uh i've known eric for a number of years and i've been working on familiarizing myself with this format since pretty much i met him um (laughs) the name of this of this highlight this format sorry we're slow rolling you guys yeah (laughs) the name of this format is called foil highlander roulette and we will get into the explanation of what all that means in just a second here. But the gist of it is, it's a, a, a deck builder's dream. You're challenged to build six decks that have no repetitious cards amongst any of those six. So singleton over all 600 cards instead of just the normal 100. All decks have to be 100 cards each. And the only cards legal to be used in deck design are cards that have a premium foil version in print. So everything that was printed... Uh, both 7th edition and Urza's Legacy Forward, and then any other reprint or special foil is legal. the vaults, the uh, foil premium series that were coming out, judge foils. There are six decks. You will sit down across from somebody. You will each roll a six-sider. That will determine the matchup every game. Uh, And for that reason, you get sort of a a non-repetitious, very exciting... It's just a, it's a great way to play Magic with 600 different cards. And and this is what I love. I love when you see this kind of passion in somebody who really responds well to something that you've created... I mean, this whole format was really created to solve a few of the problems that I was having with Magic in general. Um, okay, first first and foremost, why 100 cards per deck as opposed to 60? Okay. Well, playing in a lot of standard and a lot of constructed formats, we played a lot of 60-card decks. And one of the things we wanted to eliminate the most was the repetition. Now, granted, there are other singleton 100-card formats out there, and so we felt that this was the best platform to really launch this new kind of format. So it's it's sort of like Elder Dragon Highlander or EDH in some ways. Originally, did you you came up against that when you were coming up with it, right? Absolutely. I think that this was this was actually kind of the anti Elder Dragon Highlander. Sure. Um, I was a, a huge fan of Highlander, just hundred card singleton as it first came out. For the record, for new players, Elder Dragon Highlander is Commander. Yeah. It's yes. Become yes. Commander. <laughs> yes. A bunch of old farts. Here. The uh, the when it was birthed in the garage. It was Elder Dragon Highlander and has then since been transformed into Commander as an official format. We kind of created this as the anti-Commander. Commander ended up being a format that basically was a lot of politics and a lot of very slow, passive-aggressive type decks. That was just not my format. It's not my style. I really like playing very competitive one-on-one. If I do something, it is directly affecting you and I don't have to lobby three other people to not kill me in order to uh, actually achieve a victory. I think a lot of people connect to it for that same reason. I've always had issues with... uh, I don't want to say issues. I have played a a decent amount of EDH in my life, or Commander. My issues were the same as yours. I I didn't like multiplayer games as much. I didn't like feeling like I couldn't control my side of the board without having to count on somebody else doing or not doing something. Well, there there are two sides to the Commander, really. There's the deck-building strip part, which is... You know, the thing that I think you guys probably most enjoyed of the format where it's, you know, coming with an interesting thing with 100 cards. It's semi-thematic. There's deck building challenges based on color and you get to kind of try and see what it goes. And it's not like standard or 
constructed in general where it's I need to figure out the most hyper efficient, you know, one v one tournament strategy. It, right. it allows so it's not like the same game every time. Like because in sixty card decks, the point is to make it so it's the same game as much as possible. Absolutely. Like the reason tutors are banned in most format is because it's better to have them and make it so you're more consistent. Sure. This allows you to kind of create something so you don't feel when you're playing with the same deck for decades on end, it doesn't feel the same every time. Now, the the other side of it is the multiplayer side, and generally that's the thing that turns off competitive players the most. Most people I know that like playing Magic and love Magic and love deck building, some of them hate Commander, and the reason they don't like Commander has more to do with the fact that they don't like the decision process being up to other people. They don't like the fact that they could do everything correctly and get punished because... Joe Schmo on the like the right to the table that wasn't winning the whole time is like oh I just stop you from winning and the other person you know there's so many different things that go into it sure sure it's it's so that's my aversion to it Eric's aversion to it it's not in any way a judgment of the format it's just a different kind of magic than the magic I like to play uh, generally and I think you're kind of the same way absolutely I, I never like the fact that you should punish the guy in first place in a race and that's what that's what that kind of felt like but so you hate the blue show. I do. But so but so how do we take the essence of this? This this incredible awesome deck building challenge and reshape it into a more competitive format where your decks were not designed and finely tuned to just beat one certain type of deck or one certain type of metagame, but really have to try and have a, a game against so many different types of strategies and decks that it made the deck construction just so, so, so crucial. It's interesting because it's one of the reasons I am a big modern player, obviously, and that's why we're on this podcast. And it's similar to modern in that sense. And I would say it's the most similar of the uh, casual constructed formats. And the reason for that is modern is such a weirdly wide, diverse format that has answers in a widely different way that your decks have to be able to handle less like, oh, I need to be able to make sure I handle this one thing. It's We have to be able to handle anything. I have to be able to handle everything from Infect to Splinter Twin to Affinity. Yep. And if I can't handle the widest possibility of situations, then I'm going to have problems. Highlander is very similar because you have one of six decks. There's no sideboarding. So your deck has to be given the tools when you're starting every one of the six decks to be able to handle what's coming at you. You're also, you find yourself in a situation where because uh, the, the constraints, the deck building constraints are actually very similar. They're within about a year of each other. The, but the major difference is, obviously, because you don't get redundancy of four copies in every deck, you end up uh, increasing the power level of a deck that would be severely underpowered compared to a modern deck by getting to use cards that have foil versions. There's a Force of Will foil. There's a Demonic Tutor foil. There's a, these right. are cards you don't There's get to use in modern. Foil. Yeah, but you can play them in this format. It ends up balancing out and, and being a, a really nicely balanced format that does play differently than modern, but it feels in some ways... Very similar. The other exciting thing about it is I kind of relate it to uh, Vintage in many ways, but it's Vintage Light in the sense that Vintage has the biggest problem of, oh, there are these cards that you can't afford. Like, you need, right. you need dual lands, and you need a lot of them. You need the power nine. This is, you get some of the really cool and intricate decision processes that are in Vintage, like Storm or uh, Tinker into big artifacts, but you limit the fact that you don't need to spend $100,000 on power nine cards and dual lands. Yeah. So backing up for a quick second, uh, the format is, is is called Foil Highlander Roulette. So take us back to the beginning, and where did that name come from? What does that mean? All right, so just to give you a, a little brief history of how this whole thing came up, uh, me and the other co-founder of this format, Nam Tran, he and I meet about once a week to play Magic at lunch, and we brought our Highlander decks every single week, and we just got into this mode where it just became a rock-paper-scissor game of who tuned their deck tuned their deck to the other deck that for that week we also encountered so many of the same power cards every single time so it just became who got to pull off a mind chatter first who got to pull off the identity crisis and it's basically as soon as someone played that they pretty much won the game so we wanted to make it so that if you were playing mind shadow or identity crisis or any of those other super powerful cards that you would it would only be one card out of a hundred in one deck and then you had to multiply that by six so you would only encounter that so little of a time. It didn't just become a race to see who could play the power card. It became a balancing act between all six decks to see where you strategically placed these power cards throughout your wheel. So now before you got to that point where you were doing highly competitive and, and well-tuned matchups, wasn't the format originally a little bit more roguish and like sitting around with your buddy <laughs> drinking a beer and, and, and it was called Foil Hunter Roulette, not because... It was it was that the foils you had were your deck, right? Yes, that was yeah. kind of the idea. Now, now before we went to the six deck format, 
we weren't as loose with proxies and printing up cards and stuff like that. So it was, you had to play with real cards. And so the reason that the foil was such a great tune on it is because it added a bunch of values to these junk commons right. and lands. And you ended up starting by just saying, okay, I have the most red foils, so I'm going to build a red deck and throw in every red foil card I have. And of course the deck will suck. And then you go back and you're like, okay, I got to trade for some red foils. I got to go do this. It just became this really great constraint that made it so that you couldn't just net deck a list and just print it out and have like anything you wanted. It was a huge constraint on how much magic you played and how much you could acquire. Right. So that's, if that's, if we look at that as like step one, that was like the incubatory moment. Yes. And then you start to take it where you're playing consistent games against other high level players and you, you guys are getting competitive. Yes. What was the next step? Well, the, the next step, the limiter that the foil thing provided was it definitely put a line in the sand of where you didn't have to play older cards. Sure. But it also kind of gave that that really great, if new promos and DCI foils and judge foils were coming out, it made you really excited for those foils coming out because then you could add them into your deck. Well, it kind of lets you have an unofficial, official, like, personal spoiler season where Standard gets a new set of everything. Even, you know, you get that, but then you also get... They kind of have Commander Products as the Commander release. You get From the Vaults. So every From the Vaults, generally they attempt to print one or two cards that have never been foiled before, mostly from uh, Portal 3 Kingdoms. But, yep, right. Yep. But you, like, every single one of those is like, oh, which one's going to be, which Portal 3 Kingdoms? Is it going to be Imperial Steel? No, but, like, you get really cool cards that come out there. Let me tell you, I would not have been excited about Commander's Arsenal being released had it not been for this format. Right. Because <laughs> all of a sudden I'm looking, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can put Chaos Warp into my wheel now. I have to go analyze all of my decks and see where it fits the best. <laughs> well, see, that's really, I think, the most interesting thing from, from the deck building standpoint is that once you have a wheel completed and you're going forward and you're trying to think about building the next wheel, every every release set, I mean, it affects you the same way that it released, affects any format where you're trying to go through the, the established decks and slot in the most powerful cards. But on top of that, you get more than just the official three sets or, I guess, in the case of core sets and now the fourth set, four releases a year. You get like six yeah. because you get the premium decks and you get from the vault. And each time one is like every couple months you're getting right. something new to add. Judge it's, promos. Yeah. And Generally there's one judge promo a year that's kind of not what has been printed before. And the force power level. Yeah, force <laughs> will. The power level of these decks can be so high that, you know, I'm constantly swapping out three cards in my favorite deck. But I'll see an amazing spell comes out that I just think is perfect. And I'll be like, is it really better than what I already have? Is yeah. it really better? And You know what I mean? So that's great. So... Even even sets that come out that are not the formats that ordinarily wouldn't have an impact on standard or modern because they weren't legal to be playing like conspiracy all of a sudden hold a lot more inherent weight because they still have foil versions that impact this format. Yeah, weird cards. I mean, Dak Faden is literally like the best card I've ever played with in my life. Oh, it is yeah. really good. Cards amazing. Yeah. Um, so and then you know I think that that one particular card I think has a really interesting effect because you look at it and then like. Normally, you wouldn't play that card if it was legal and standard because people aren't playing signets and talismans and standard. They're not legal. But in a format like this where hitting a two-drop that accelerates you into a, a four-mana spell on turn three is such a big part of formats like this, speeding right. your decks up, all of a sudden, a card like this has such insane value because you're almost always going to have a target to steal. Well, yeah. and, and this is similar. I mean, I mentioned before, this has very similar feelings to being able to play Vintage. And this is one of the interactions. Deck Faded is nuts in Vintage. He's right. one of the like best cards printed in recent year for that format. And he has a very similar effect on this format because artifacts are much more prolific than they normally would be in like modern or something along those lines. Yeah, definitely very good. So uh, you get to a point where you're, you're starting to think about a full six decks and you're getting a little more competitive. Yeah. Now your player base is maybe a half dozen people, right? Or seven or eight people. Yeah. I mean, of the people that we play tested with, we had maybe half a dozen people that were into this format to the point where they were building two or three decks. And me and Nam, as the creators, we kind of, we really like charged on getting our six decks built really quickly as soon as we came up with the idea. Right. And then, of course, very quickly after that, we started working on our next six and our next six just because it just became such... I'd say probably 70% of the time I spend on this format is away from the play table. It's building decks, concepting ideas, finally tuning things just in theory before I even collect the cards, print them out, do anything like that. And it's just such an amazing deck challenge that it really entertains you on all fronts. 100%. Uh, okay, so now now you're gonna move forward a little bit. We're gonna get to maybe the, like the next step of it. So you guys played for a couple years doing this, a few years. I mean, when how long ago did you first play your first game of Highlander Roulette? Let's see. We created the format about six years ago. Okay. Yeah. And I've I've known you now for about 
four, four and a half. So I've probably been playing this format with you for three and a half years. So yeah. I think I, I met you around a time that it was it was getting a little bit more competitive. It wasn't quite there yet. Uh, I think there was maybe three or four of us that got on board around the same time that really started to move it forward. It's all about raising the bar amongst your playtest group. As soon as somebody is winning all the time, and I don't know about you guys, I don't like to lose. Nor so, do I. <laughs> so well, losing's the best. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I just um, love it. <laughs> I think that I think that for a solid four months, I did not win one game against Nam. Against Nam, I literally every single week I came, I brought my best A game, I changed my decks up, and for some reason he was always one step ahead of me. And when I finally reached that nexus where I caught up with him, and what started being coming a coin flip on who won and lost was one of the best moments because I had finally gotten to that point where my I had put in the time, tuned my decks, come up with some creative ideas, found some card interactions that he wasn't expecting, and implemented them into the deck. So, uh, so I when I tried to get into this format, it took me about a year and a half. <laughs> I built I, I I built four decks or five like first decks in a wheel that I was annoyed with how ineffective they were and took apart before I finally built one that I liked and I had one deck for a while. Well, so I mean, on that note, the. Way it's currently built now to let people kind of join in on the format is generally if it's your first time, the TO would allow you to have less decks. So, you know, normally the like eventual goal is to have six decks, and and every tournament you go to at a specific location will make you increase by deck per tournament. But you can start with just three. Yeah. And the reason that's three is because you want to play a different deck every round per per match, um, or possibly per match. Um, the other subset of that is the fact that the cards are all, you know right now there's a proxy limit. And yes. you are allowed to have some proxies in the deck. Those two things allow kind of decks to be added to the format. I probably took the same amount of time to get started, though, was about a year. And that's because, you know, I started with an EDH deck. I had a all-foil Geist Commander deck that kind of already sliced into it and still in my first wheel. And kind of build cards around that. And, you know, I started with, like, oh, Mono Red Goblins, and that's gone. I start with a Naya mid-range deck, and that's no longer around. Right. <laughs> it eventually takes you a while to figure out, you know, oh, this... Format is aggressive, but it's an aggressive in a very specific way, and you have to yeah. kind of build your decks to kind of go around that situation. Yeah. You, you know, like, I found that in terms of, like, the deck construction part about this, it is all about finding consistency in your decks. And so because of that, you end up searching for multiple cards that functionally work the same way, but it's even harder because since you can't use the same card twice, it ends up being uh, you have to have cards that are printed similar, sometimes weaker, but you still right. include them. I'll give you an example. I have one uh, Ting Ting deck, which is basically just all Prodigal Sorcerer-like Tim cards. Um, and so in looking for a wide breadth of these type of cards, you have to go all the way down to Ember Mage Goblin, where you're paying the exact same amount of mana that you would for something much more powerful, but instead you're just getting more consistency of having more of those one mana, one pinger creatures in there. We well, see... Oh, go ahead. Well, so... On that note, what's kind of cool about the format is in modern, and less so in modern even, but like definitely in like standard and often in legacy and often in uh, commander, you know, consistency in the metagame is really low. Or, uh, sorry, uh, diversity in the metagame is really low. Right. So, you know, in standard, there's five decks. Right now, actually, standard's much better, and there's a little bit more than that, but there's still, you know, you can kind of sit down at a table and know what's coming at you. Modern is kind of the same way. Right. Um, and even in commander... There's now basically pretty much a 10, 10 top in each color list that if you're playing that color, you need to be playing these 10 cards. Every deck should have Soul Ring and top in it. This forces it so that the decks you're building, A, can't have that. You yep. can't have Soul Ring in six decks. You just can't. You can't have top in six decks. You should. If, like, if it was legal, that's like top should be in every deck possible because it's just that powerful. But you can't, and therefore, it makes it so each deck can be something you want it to be yes you can you can brew you can build a new deck and you can say i want to build this concept i want to build a aristocrats like sacrifice deck and you can do that and it's going to be able to be a little bit more competitive than normal because other people have that option available to them i think you just hit it right on the head in terms of if you're building a deck and there weren't these constraints and limitations on it there is almost an auto include list of cards that you would put in there and half of your deck is already built for you so where's really the creativity all of a sudden you're only really designing a small tertiary part of your deck and then including the stuff that you know you have to right. include. And it, there is probably a top 10 cards that, or top 50 cards even that you probably need to have in your wheel. Yeah, I would say 100%. Eric Eric is notorious because he's so passionate about this format. He loves it more <laughs> than anyone. He's notorious for new players who are like getting in and trying to find their foot and be like, hey, here's 100 cards you should try to play in your decks. Put these in all your decks. I'll be like, uh, 
I, you told me an idea that's three weeks ago off handling that you had an idea. I put together a list for you. If you want to look at it, you can. And it's like, <laughs> you built my deck before I built my deck? Come on, man. Right. Um, well, and, but the difference is where in Commander, that's your deck. You like, basically, it's built for you. Yeah. Right. In this situation, you're like, well, okay, well, what deck needs Soul Ring the most? Yeah. Which deck need, like, you know, do I have Counterbalance top in a deck? Or does my red Sacrifice Artifacts deck need top more? Like, what, well, it's, where it's, is top the most important? It's amazing. I've tried Storm, and you tried Storm. We both failed, I think. Yep. But at this last tournament this last weekend, there were two Storm players. Right. Right? That's amazing. They were both good. They are both good <laughs> decks. I mean, that's that's the craziest thing about this format is, like, it is it is beyond a Brewer's Paradise. You guys hear me talk about Grand Architect on this podcast <laughs> every single Every week, single podcast. Every single podcast. And I was, like, torn because Grand Architect was so good in one of my decks, but it would even be better in another deck, so I had to switch it. I had to switch Grand Architect. Yeah. Based on deck needs, not my needs. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned earlier um, the reasoning for you know it being multiple decks is because you're getting sick of just playing the same decks against each other. And it's something I've noticed. That's a lot of the time what people have been doing already with Commander when they're just 1v1. Me and my friend Mael, who I went to high school with, we would just sit down and I have my like seven commander decks and we would roll off anyways we would just be like oh which deck do we want like we don't want to play the same decks again and again so we'll just roll off which decks are available and go through it or we i did that with standard decks i did it with other decks at times and it was just because you know variety was nice when you're playing just 1v1 if you're not testing for a tournament and even then you want to test a diverse format you know you you need some way to kind of move it and this kind of is a built-in format that allows that kind of gameplay that i think a lot of players are doing anyways absolutely i think that you know if this is kind of the solution that people are already discovering on their own, why not legitimize it and just make it part of the game that as an official part of it? And, and I'm a firm believer in words where I like Commander and I like, you know, formats in general. I'm a firm believer that formats are important because I do think when you don't have them, the power level differences between people's decks and what they assume could be planned leads to bad no fun moments where Absolutely. I'm a new player and I like my goblin deck that has you know 40 cards in it and they're all terrible like five drops right. and I go to the table and I was like oh I have casual also black lotus into and you're just like uh yeah. your deck's way better than mine yeah I must be terrible and instead of like oh no there's just he's playing a vintage level deck and you're playing a casual new deck where yeah. like that's such a mental evolution though I went through that early on everyone in magic. Does. Where and I, I mean, I wasn't even like new at it. I played Magic for years as that casual guy. They weren't five drop goblins, but I mean, they were like, <laughs> you know, I would like build like a blue green beasts casual deck that yeah. had like, you know, cool cards that had fun like draw a card when you play beast interactions and mana leak. But like the three rares you owned, <laughs> yeah, like whatever. Then you know, I, I I bought like extra copies of Histrodong because I thought it was such a cool card. And then I sat down against somebody who was just playing like a dedicated blue counter magic deck or like, standard. This is, like, this is horrible. This isn't right. fun at all. See, yeah. like me, I kind of went down a different path. I took almost the best of what you're saying and the best of what you're saying. I was always a home brewer in, in terms of my decks. I never net decked. I never like took the standard of what was good out there and just built that deck. I always thought that the best part of this game was showing my creativity through my deck building. And so at the same time, when I ran up into very highly level, high level competitive players, I just took that as a deeper challenge. I'm like, not only do I want to beat you at a high level, but I want to beat you with a card that you have to reach across the table and grab and read because you have no idea what it does because nobody else uses it. I mean, you, the three so of you're us. The, the hipster of playing. <laughs> I would literally say the three of us in this room are all very committed to that idea. That's, that's, oh, yeah. that's been the story of our friendship. I mean, you can't see it. Of our friendship, Alex and I, and Eric, my friendship with you. It's pretty much been like me harassing you in the middle of the day, being like, I have an idea. I have an idea for a deck. We should talk about oh, it. I, I get a call from you maybe daily about being it. like, okay, so Grand Architect appealed Paula when you did unlimited mana. And I'm just like, okay, Ben. I called Kessler recently with an idea for a modern deck that was going to play every single comes into play tapped gain life land that you could possibly play and Searing Meditation as your finisher. Yeah. Uh, he spent three days calling me on yeah. this. No, I tell you. I'm you know like, what? Okay, I feel like I'm the lands are just convinced. bad. Yeah. I'm still convinced. Ordinarily, if my phone rings or my text message starts beeping at two or three o'clock in the morning, it usually would concern my wife. But now she's just like, oh, it's, it's Ben. He's got a new deck idea. We know what's going on. Um, all right. So so the next step of this format, we're, that's, I would say, the three of us kind of coming to this together a little bit. So Alex has really stepped in and helped kind of on the organizational side of maybe legitimizing this and t t taking it to the next level. And our friends over at Heidi Ho, 
Andrew Brown, who you guys have talked to, he was here last week, a couple times. Uh, he's kind of expressed a little bit of interest in getting involved a little bit and maybe maybe hosting the tournaments at Heidi Ho. We're try- kind of working on that right now. So we're we're talking together as a group about moving this forward into a monthly semi-sanctioned format with actually like a proxy limit even. Um, yeah, so previous to this, proxies were no bar. You just, you know, make sure it was legible. Generally, we preferred that you printed them out. Yeah, print So outs. it's not like, uh, what's that bad handwriting card do? Oh, uh, <laughs> it's whatever I need right now. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Ben. <laughs> um, so, you know, print them out. But now, you know, we're because we're going to the store, and, and store's motivation is to make money and sell, and sell cards, and, you know, there's Wizards of the Coast limitations, we're going to be putting a proxy limit. Right now, I think it's between 10 and 15 cards per deck. Um, but that can be ranged. So you can have one deck that's 60 proxies as long as the other decks aren't taking up those 15 slots. We're thinking about having essentially 10% of your wheel would be the limit. So yeah. if you have, if you're building your wheel and you're on your third deck, you get 30 proxies in your wheel at that point. Yeah. It scales up as you get to a full six. And again, the, one of the great things about doing this is you, you're building six decks, but you don't need more than one of any Planeswalker or Dual Land or anything else. Whereas with any sort of other deck, you would need four copies of it. Or even if you're playing a couple standard decks, you'd need even possibly more. Well, yeah, you're never going to play more than one wheel in a tournament. So at the, at the point, I mean, it would be a little bit problematic, obviously, tournament to tournament, switch all your cards between sleeves. But you never have to own more than a single copy of a card to play in this format. And because limitations breed creativity... Uh, you are encouraged to, you have to stay within the foil deck design, but not your cards don't actually have to be foil. I mean, oh, mine do. I mean, <laughs> I would love for all my cards to be foil, but like I play Jace the Mind Sculptor in my deck. Like, yeah, yeah. Actually, I have that foil because of the From the Vault 20. Different conversation, but yeah. he's way easier than like foil Tarmogoyf, but let's move yeah, on. Yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> so, all right, so that kind of covers the, uh, the, the format history and where, we, where we're going to kind of go with it. Um, so now we can speak as peers a little bit as opposed to kind of getting a history lesson on the format. Right. But I still will kind of engage you in this this first idea because you have four wheels now, right? I'm, I am currently about halfway through building my fourth wheel. Right. We carry these around in vintage lunchboxes, by the way. That's kind of the other <laughs> part of it. It's, Yours is like a Fendi... A fen- fender. fender. It, it looks not a Fendi bag. It looks like a Fender. It looks like a Fender it's a designer highlighter. Yeah, um, I the last two tournaments I've I've won um, lunch boxes uh, for, my, <laughs> for my. I have two lunch boxes. Yeah. But uh, anyway, um, well the original the original working name for this format was lunchbox, and that was because six decks fit perfectly inside your standard lunchbox. It's pretty awesome. It just looks really fun to carry it around with you. Yeah. Um, but uh, anyway, so. So what I want to know, Eric, is when you concept a wheel now, when you start from one and you're going to go to 600, where do you start? Do you start with a single deck? Like, how do you do it? So I end up building on on usually like the decked app or something else. I usually end up building somewhere around 20 or 30 decks before I even decide these are the six that i'm going to go with okay and so i will go there's a very high mortality rate in my deck design lord me too in that i'll come up with a crazy idea i'll do it and a week later it's scrapped because i just didn't find the cards i liked it just didn't come together um the way i do it which is different than the way a lot of people do it is i do it in silos i build the best deck i possibly possibly can and then kind of put it to the side and then when i'm piecemealing my wheel together i kind of strategically pick the colors and the ones where I know there won't be overlap cards uh, to form that wheel. And because of that, it's really good to go with strong themes. So tribal decks are really good. Almost every single one of my wheels has a tribal deck somewhere in there because it just gives you access to so many other cards that you wouldn't play ordinarily in just a that color deck that right. it uses up so the many linear, slots. The, the linear strategy of the fact that, you know, it's the same reason they kind of always have a tribal theme in uh, drafts. Yes. Uh, it's because... That way, the one player who's doing that tribal will get, like, the weird, dirtily, like, warrior cards and cons late. Right. Because no one else is but that guy is going to be picking them. Sure. And so he's going to be able to get, put his deck together, which kind of, like, frees up a slot of different strategies that the format has pretty easily. Yeah. So inevitably, uh, once you get to decks five and six in the wheel, mm-hmm. it gets harder, right? Very hard. And uh, I think you were talking about it before in terms of painstakingly deciding what deck goes where and what card goes in which deck. Um, it definitely comes down to that. It's it's what card needs the removal. It's what card needs the the draw spells, stuff like that. And that kind of like brings me to when you're constructing a deck, uh, the evolution of what usually take place. And so this is my own personal experience of usually what will happen is 
I come up with a crazy, zany, off-the-wall idea for some weird combo or some weird theme, and I will completely over-theme it. I will completely ignore utility and all the acceleration, and all the other things, and I'm just solely going towards this one goal of theming this deck out like that. The deck will then usually lose horribly. A bunch, right. And then I'll start to analyze and say, okay, I need to put in my acceleration. I need to put in my removal, my card draw, all these different type of things. As soon as you do that, it starts winning a little bit better, and you go to the next phase, which is I have to make sure I have artifact enchant removal. I have to make sure I have some main deck graveyard hate. As you start to go, you'll start to learn that all this stuff is very essential to go into each one of these decks. And so now when I build decks, I get to the end result a lot faster. Well, so this is kind of something I wanted to mention. You mentioned like the way you go about picking decks, and I think that's a little bit of a master's class in the format because I think a good place for a new player coming to the format is actually looking at mana base. Yeah. So a lot of the time, the most difficult thing in making a deck consistent is making it so you don't get mana screwed or color screwed, and looking at, okay, I'm going to make these colored decks and actually doing the mana base first and deciding I'm going to have a white-black deck. I'm going to have a red-green a red -green deck. You know, like making sure that over your six decks, you kind of have a variety. I've chosen the harder path, and most of my wheels are like three-color decks, but you can pretty easily come up with six two-color and maybe a one-color or maybe a three-color or five-color deck because the mana base, the, the mana exists in the format to do so. Yep. And then from there, be like, okay, I have blue-green. What type of decks would be interesting to make a blue-green? Which formats would be? Or the other standpoint, which I think most people come at it, is I have a deck. Yeah. I'm starting with I have my commander deck a lot of the time. Sure. And this guy is a... I have the green, black, white uh, aura deck that exists, and I'm going to try and take that and make it a part of the format. Then you're like, okay, well, I can't have green, black, green, white, or green, blue as any of my other decks, so I need to kind of mold what the rest of the decks are in the format before then. Start, like, planning ahead, I think, is a very good way to start. And, you know, I see, I, I see a lot of new players. I mean, I've introduced a lot of new players to this format, and exactly right. A lot of them end up just kind of coming up with color combinations first on what their plan is for their wheel, and then almost let that dictate what the themes are going to be. Well, it's also, just like you were talking earlier about how redundancy is such an important part of this format, and playing lower power cards maybe that but that still sort of like fill the same role. Um, the most interesting thing, because this is a puzzle format. That's, I mean, right. we're all drawn to magic. Not all of us, but I know the three of us are drawn to it as a puzzle game. Yeah. It's, we're drawn to it from the deck building standpoint. You want to be as creative as possible. You want all these weird little dirty interactions to be just awesome. And <laughs> you want your opponent to think you're super clever. Yeah. Uh, and so I always think it's really interesting. Like when, you know, I was building like a blue red mana denial kind of a deck recently. And, and so first the idea was, okay, I'm going to play suspend cards from the time spiral block. And then while those are suspended, I'll use the first three or four turns to like maybe bounce your lands or blow your lands up. So once it comes in, you can't interact with it because you're just on your, you know, your back feet or whatever. Yeah. I struggled with the concept for a while until I started to realize how many other interesting cards there were that did sort of what I wanted that didn't just say destroy a land or bounce a permanent. Do you know what I mean? Partic oh, yeah. Minor was one of the cards you suggested to me. One red, one colorless. I think it's a 1-1 one, one or a 1-2. One, it's a 1-1. One, one. Sacrifice it. Target player can't play a land this turn. It's one of these very, like, think outside the box kind of... It's not a land destruction card, but it is kind of a... It, it does exactly what you want. That's what this format's all about, is you're going to discover a card randomly that you're going to say oh, I can tap this creature to turn your basic land into a different kind of basic land during your upkeep? Yeah. Well, that's kind of mana denial. That's kind of mana. <laughs> shit import is good. Yeah, and they all start to add together. And so for me, when I'm when I'm building my wheels and I'm, I'm looking at my decks, the, the most interesting recent development I found is a lot of the banned interactions that are not legal in modern are legal. You can play Dark Depths and Hex Mage. You can play Scape Shift. Well, you can play Scape Shift anyway, but I'll have a red-green deck, and I'll say, well, why am I not just playing a copy of Valakut Scapeshift in right, this Right, that's deck? a one-card combo. I mean, yeah. the first thing I did after kind of picking my colors out was I looked at ban lists of every format that existed and looked at things that were still legal. Oh, so like, you went straight for the, the hidden gem route. Uh, You're well, like, well, I play I'm going to take formats, the most broken right. cards. So like, I was like, okay, Primeval Titan, Grizzlebrand, and Emrakul are now all available. That They're not available in Commander. Right. Oh, uh, Hypergenitus is now a card that I can play with. Great. Okay, in There's a deck. your deck. Jace is in a deck. <laughs> yeah, so like, I literally went through Vintage, Legacy, all these formats to see what cards are 
considered so powerful they have to be banned in other formats. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I'm playing these cards. Yeah. <laughs> what know, what colors do these fit in? <laughs> I've seen I've seen and it's funny because just in the three of us, yes, three very, very different styles of A, how we were introduced to it and how we kind of went through our process of building decks. We have a, a friend named Big Tone and Yeah. He, he he chose black. Didn't he just he, he just chose the will color not black? play. <laughs> he will not play anything that's not a black card. So he started his wheel with a mono black control, and he followed it up with a mono black aggro, and then he followed that up with a mono black discard deck. And let me tell you, every single time I'm like Tone, there's no way that you can build another mono black deck. You're just going to be going into junky cards. Somehow the guy found a way to do it. And he has a wheel <laughs> with three built, mono blacks. No, he built another. He built a, a fourth, a, another mono black control deck. It's the same as the first one. It just plays all the other cards. <laughs> it's amazing. I, well, I mono, don't know why. Mono because... Black Control has been good, what, five times in Magic's history? Yeah. Just like each each one's a historical document. Yeah. Like a different yeah. decade. And he is one of the people that didn't like the proxies at all. He basically wanted all his real cards in there. So the reason he builds all his deck is because he has such a deep well of black cards because that's all he's ever bought to tink around and experiment <laughs> with his decks that when he's like, oh, I need a new deck, he goes through, looks at what he has, and that's the start of his new deck. Yeah. No, it's it's definitely it's amazing how we all we all pro- approach the deck building differently. Yeah. I um I, I want to do that. I want to pick a color and just do six only that color. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm that way with blue a little bit. That's that's kind of my thing. So my my main wheel. Um, of course you are. <laughs> I think I play four blue decks in that wheel. Yeah. And when I got to the sixth deck, I mean the sixth deck in that in this wheel was painstaking to make for me. I had four or five different versions that I built and took apart, built and took apart. Is this mono white? No, that that deck kind of has morphed into like the mainstay fifth deck. It's yeah. like my only control deck, but I'm adding blue to it. Um, <laughs> of course. <laughs> but uh, but uh, my sixth deck, and I think this is really an interesting point, which you guys were talking about. I built a mono blue merfolk deck, even though I already had three other blue decks in my wheel. Mm-hmm. And it's turned out to be one of my better decks. Well, tribal... Tribal is almost a, like, seventh color or sixth color, right. like, if you will, because most of the card, if you pick a tribe, aren't good anywhere else. Right. Elvish Archdruid is not a good card unless you're playing a bunch of elves. It's right. all hive mind. So, like, it allows its kind of to exist in an auxiliary area, and because it's not normally using dual lands even, you're not really stealing anything from any of the other decks you have. Yeah. Most people, most wheels we know have, if not a... Uh, tribal deck, a, at least a monocolor, like, hyper-aggressive, like, red, you know, like, uh, Nam has Burn. Yeah. Right. He just has a mono-red deck that attacks quick. Yeah. Um, uh, Alex, one of the other people we play with, has green beatdown where it's just, like, a bunch of one-drop green creatures, like, Dragon Stompy, basically, or, yeah. you know, mono-green Stompy. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's, that's definitely, uh, so, so we sort of touched on maybe concept of a wheel. Uh, so I, I will say that, you know, Kind of what you were touching on earlier in terms of like looking at the colors that were available and going through that. Uh, I will say that I have done that in a couple, especially as you're working on wheel four, you almost kind of are forced to go into that right. mode. Um, Nam had a blue green deck built, which was a blue green tempo deck with like Romans and Temporal Springs and just amazing tempo blue green. And I gotta tell you, every single time I tried to build a blue green deck, it ended up turning into that deck. Which, of course, I couldn't do because it's very important to me to be individualistic on these. Not just copy people's ideas. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm so, just going to make a wheel that's your wheel. <laughs> <laughs> so this... Just show up and you're like, wait a second. <laughs> so out of this birthed two new ideas that have become a very good deck in my wheel three and as well as one of my new decks coming in wheel four. Both blue-green and both completely different than what that blue-green deck is. And it was just so satisfying to find that color interaction and execute it in a completely different way where I wasn't using hardly any of the same cards. Whereas you would think that if you're playing that color combination, there's just staples that should go in there. I found ways to efficiently rule those out. Well, my blue-red mana denial deck in Wheel 2 drew a tremendous amount of inspiration from your Esper Wizards deck from yes. Wheel 1. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I borrowed a lot of the ideas. So yeah. I, I think that's one of the other coolest things is you get inspiration from other people's ideas. I mean, yeah. Kessler's... Kessler's Storm deck blew my mind. Like you went off, you went off on turn four, I think, or without any, without any tutors or deck manipulation. The first time you played it against me in a hundred card deck with no like repetitive consistency, he was able to pull off a Storm deck. I, I still don't even know how he did it. And you can't even play Pyromancer's Ascension because there's only one copy of every card. Yeah, no, that card just doesn't work. I tried. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I had it in the deck because I just put good Storm cards. I was like, oh wait, this just. Literally reads it. Does not card. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, there, there are cards that you would think do absolutely nothing, but guess what? There are still creative ways to do that. And I think Ben, one of the decks that you built that I really wanted to work, I really wanted it to work was the Biovisionary deck. Oh, I, I'm still convinced that's going to work at some Biovisionary, point. Uh, for those of you guys who don't know, it's a one colorless, one blue, one green, two, three creature that if you have four copies of him in play, you just, during your upkeep, you win the game. Now, of course, you can only have one copy of him in your deck. So Ben created, oh man, there was some... I wanted to, I wanted to mirror weave Biovisionary. Mirror weave, yes. Mirror weave. All of my creatures Biovisionaries. Oh, right. We all, of, both of our creatures would become Biovisionaries, but because if I did it at the right time... Mine would go on the stack and resolve first. I would win the game. This, yeah. this I, I had two versions. I even sleeved up a version of this deck. I mean, and then you start looking at cards like Followed Footsteps. Cards that you ordinarily just wouldn't even put into a deck. And all of a sudden, you're like, wow, I can make more and more copies of Biovisionary. So then uh, all of a two, sudden, three. you made the cut. I'm yeah. going to follow Footsteps <laughs> on a vanilla 2 3. Yeah. It's and I, so good. I still feel that you're going to bring that back and win it. But that just goes to show you that, you know, there is nothing that's out of bounds on this. You can take a card that you think does absolutely nothing and you can creatively find a way to engineer it. I've beat you with near-death experience more than one time. Oh, yes. Yeah. Well, and and what's kind of nice about the format, and because it's six decks, say you come with a deck that maybe might not be the highest power level, it's not like a tier one vintage deck or whatever material, because you have six decks, maybe once in a while you'll get the try it, you get the win, or you like sometimes you'll win out of nowhere because there's people aren't ready to handle it. Yep. But you're also not crippling yourself like you normally would in a tournament of coming to a tournament with a bad brew. This is allowing you to like, <laughs> well... You know, odds are once every two matches I might play this deck and it might lose, but at least then I get to test it through the Crucible of Fire while I'm playing with my good decks that will at least get me through the tournament unscathed. Yep. I.e. my like Shadowborn Apostle deck. <laughs> That's a, yeah, the Shadowborn Apostle deck's awesome. The deck's great. It used up almost no slots from the rest of my wheel. Because <laughs> you play 50 Shadowborn Apostles. Yes. <laughs> Um, awesome, awesome. All right, so that's that's wheel design. Now let's talk about some of the kind of intricacies of the format, some of the weirder rules and things that. Uh, well, we'll start with wish cards. I think okay. it's kind of an interesting one. Yeah. Well, there's been there's definitely been some uh, some tension on the subject. We've gone back <laughs> and forth about it. So right now the ruling on wish cards and it's been voted on by the the public people that play this format. Uh, if you have a wish, you target a deck in your wheel that is not the deck you're playing, and then you can search through that deck with the Wish. The reason that there's been a kind of an aversion to this idea is because it's very time-consuming to... Tar at any point in time, you can sort of get around the you're-taking-too-long rule by... You can just stare at it in your hand, thinking about what you're, get you're getting, rather than targeting the deck and looking through the whole deck. Um, I still contend that... And Eric was supportive of this idea in the first place. He's just kind of changed his tune a little because it has taken a long time. I still contend that if you're getting expert-level players that know their decks... The wish cards will work just fine. I'm all for like some sort of zany rule change where you have to like announce it and there's like a giant timer on the wall or yeah. something. But I mean, as it is now, it reads fine. So that's kind of one of the more interesting. Yeah. And that's one of the, the gray areas that honestly, as we bring this into a little bit more mainstream and expose a lot more players to it, we'll get a lot more feedback on exactly uh, what those sticking points are. For, for me right now, I think it's still at such a infantile stage that we can try cool, fun stuff like this, and it's still very experimental. Um, as a game designer, I tend to look for what what is a hang-up in the gameplay. And right. so the same way that Wizards of the Coast will look at what is breaking a format, I'll look at what are those moments when I am not having fun in the format. And if it is completely drawn back to one set of cards or one set of rules, then it, it goes on my radar as, like, maybe these shouldn't be played this way or should be, you know... Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I think um, I think there's a lot of really because okay, so that answers wish cards. The next one we'll talk about is the actual uh, game to game format. So mm -hmm. if I was to start a match against you, I would sit down and I would roll off one of my six decks, and so would you. Uh, after game one, whoever after game one, whoever lost that game gets to decide to throw on the player of the draw. You then roll off of the remaining five decks left in that box, so a five sider or a. 20 sider in increments of four, which I like or to do. Or six sided and just four and six, I five and six are annoyed. <laughs> ben <laughs> hate that. Ben hate that. Uh, and then if you go to a game three and you've both, so you've both won a game, you then re-roll for game three to see who goes first uh, or who gets the choice to play or draw. And which... see, this is something that, uh, honestly, I think that should be the standard across Magic. Because when you look at it logistically, if somebody rolls the dice first and they legitimately get an advantage in two out of three of the games, then it's way way too dependent on that one dice roll 
uh, it'll greatly affect the outcome of, of the round. Whereas if we roll off in the first round, I win one, you win one, but if it goes to a game three, we re-roll, it equalizes out. It takes a little bit of the weight off of that first dice roll and gives uh, the person who didn't win a second chance. Well, and in modern, something that mitigates this as a problem is sideboarding. The fact that you have a sideboard available and you can change what your deck is doing or to make it slightly better if it was on the draw or slightly worse if it was on the draw, um, or slightly better if it's on the play, uh, allows it to kind of survive through that. But because this deck is purely randomized what deck you're playing with, you don't have a choice of what's about to happen. It makes it a little bit more fair that you roll off on the third round. It makes it so, you know, I don't have the ability to be like, oh, well, I'm on the play. I'll make sure I play with my deck that's better on the play. Right. It's... I'm playing with this deck. <laughs> and no sideboard. But so. So let, like at least this way, fate is deciding, not not just my opponent wins because he got lucky. Yeah, it's one of those subtle design changes that we did for this format that you know just it made a lot of sense. It ended up working and it's possibly good to extrapolate toward larger magic. Um, yeah. So so if you were to look to try to get into this format with your friends, something that we're going to be introducing as we start to take this format public and, and play public tournaments, you don't need to have six decks to play the first time. That's that. That's like a big. Some people kind of are resistant to this because it's such a huge commitment on time. You build two decks. I mean, really, if you build one deck, you can play. But if you have two to start with, you at least get to play two unique games. The first two games, and if you have to go to a game three, you reroll. It's recommended to have a third. But if you wanted to get started, you could just start with two decks. Yeah. Two completely I mean, unique. Decks. Most people start with one. It's just, admittedly, probably the biggest inherent flaw with this format is that it has a very high barrier to entry. So in terms of like getting right off the the ground and getting into the format, it's a little bit harder to do. But let me tell you, once you get into it and once you're off that platform, it has been the most rewarding magic playing experience that I've done in the 20 years I've been playing magic. From a deck design standpoint, it's completely unique. I love I love modern. It's my favorite constructed format that is sanctioned. If this were sanctioned, this would probably be right up there with it. I mean, I play as much modern as I play of this format. Like they're they're pretty equal for me. Right. Well, I mean it's, I've said this a lot about the format. It is the deck builder's dreamland. Yeah. Like, in modern, you have some semblance of ability to brew, and you have cool ideas that you can kind of take to fruition. This lets me take that times six <laughs> with constraints that are, like, really interesting to kind of play around, and that's one of the reasons I love it. I mean, the reason I got into magic, the original, original reason, is because I love testing ideas that I've created in my head and seeing how they work against the world, and magic is the one thing I found that that's the point. Yeah. Like, it's mm-hmm. not, like, like anytime in, like, video games when I was a kid, mm-hmm. I would, if there's, like, a character building thing or a level building, I would tr- attempt to do that the most because then I can, like, create something and see how it would work. This is one of, like, magic lets you do that, and this format lets you do that the most of any format I've played. You know what it also kind of reminds me of a little bit in terms of, like, the construction portion of it is uh, both Team Sealed and Two-Headed Giant. Both right. of those kind of dance around the subject of I have a limited number of cards and I have to build multiple decks with those limited number of cards. But instead of having to compromise with other people on what they like to play, what what they want in their deck, you are basically controlling all the decks. So you get to dictate exactly where everything goes and you have a much larger pool to pull from. So let's, uh, I, I believe that covers the vast majority of the general rules, the deck building constraints, uh, the suggested way to get into it. Uh, Okay, so real quick, what I wanted to get into now is we each have at least one full wheel of six decks, and I kind of wanted to get to just get an explanation from you, Eric, and then then Kessler will go, then I'll go, about what are your six decks and your first wheel look like? Absolutely. I mean, these are the first six decks that I created for this format, although they were created individually. Um, The first one is a Esper tempo deck that has a sub-theme of wizards. It involves a lot of enter the battlefield triggers that bounce lands, and then a lot of flicker effects that just continue to lock you out of your mana base for your game um the second deck i created to be the antithesis of that deck was a super aggro soldiers deck this one used a lot of cards that dumped multiple soldiers into play for one card for many soldiers along with a lot of anthem like effects the amount of efficiency that's in this deck is pretty much unparalleled in my in my wheel so i still feel that's my strongest deck overall Uh, moving on i went into a bant enchantress deck which had some really fun interactions going on in there. Um, but pretty much a standard Enchantress deck. Lots of drawing cards, lots of triggers every time you play auras and stuff like that. And from there, brought into the wheel was my five-color combo. This just comes from my love for infinite loops and infinite combos. I think the original deck had about 20 infinite loops in it, and 
it was just way too much to even handle in that deck. And so I have since refined it down to about six infinite loops along with a lot more utility. And it's be it's become very, very consistent it with over, its wins. It was over-themed, so to speak. It was very over-themed in the beginning, kind of like my trademark move in the beginning. <laughs> Um, from there, I went to what I call the newsprint deck because it was black and white and red all over. And it was just more of a good stuff deck. It had a slight graveyard trigger theme from stuff dying and being brought back. However, this kind of deck took a turn once the commander's arsenal came out and Kalia of the Vast hmm. came out. And so I realized this card is so, so, so powerful that I really wanted to tune it to that. So everything from Demur House Guard that I can transmute on turn three into that on turn four just basically swapping out a lot of my big major players with angels, demons, and dragons really kind of set a theme for that deck as well. Gotcha. And your final deck in the wheel? And the final deck in the wheel was Land Destruction. Uh-huh. Jund Land Destruction. I know this is your favorite, Ben. <laughs> um, this one capitalized on the fact that, you know, most Land Destructions are, are four mana, even though this does include every three mana and two mana Land Destruction in there. Um, but so it really used a lot of two mana ramp spells, both with signets and rampant growth type effects to consistently hit a land destruction spell on turn three and continue those land destruction spells in, in perpetuity thereafter. And you, this is an older wheel for you. You still love it though. You still think it's maybe your best wheel. Still, it's great. I mean, it's still great to go revisit old cards. Like I just recently added recoup, which ends up being an amazing card because I can reuse my creature removal or another land destruction yeah. spell, basically whatever I need, and I get to do it twice. Yeah, it's, you just refine the decks over and over again over the years. Uh, every new card, one or two cards changes in those decks, but largely they stay pretty much the same. I mean, for, for this wheel in particular, when a new set comes out, I'm like, are there any soldiers? Are there any land destruction spells? Are there any wizards or things that bounce land? And are there any new cool aura slash enchantments? Right, basically. Otherwise, it's going to stay the same. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Kessler, so you've built two now. You were very aggressive. You got into this format, and you built 12 decks. And like, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it took you Well, so the first one took me about a year, and yeah. then the second one took me about a month. Yeah. Um, and I came out different ways. The first one I built starting with a commander deck and then building around it, and that's kind of why that one was the first one. And the second one, I went through every single card that's legal and picked every cool card that might be interesting to put on a wheel with a few ideas in mind, and then just like, like a sculptor chiseled it down into six different decks. <laughs> you were like Schwarzenegger, but with your body is your Highlander wheel. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A, a body sculptor. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so my first wheel, interesting enough, is actually kind of a little, a little stroll down uh, the modern band and restricted list. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, so the first one is blue white. This is the one that I start with, Geist of Saint Trapped. But it also, I'm going to pick as uh, top as the one defining card of the format. Uh, since it's defining top, it has top counterbalance. It has it, it uses top to kind of search for all of its other little intricate combos, including Thopter Seat, Thopter, uh, Thopter Sword um, combo, which is Thopter Foundry and Sword of the Meek, and it kind of just is what that is. <laughs> sure. Uh, I'm going to follow that up with uh, a Hypergenis Cascade deck. It also has Bloodbraid Elf in it. <laughs> Love Bloodbraid Elf. <laughs> Both of those banned in the format. Uh, next is Elves. It has... Um, uh, I'm going to start this one from the beginning once I remember what the card is. Staff of Dominion? No, that is not banned. Rofellows? Nope. Not banned either. You're talking about... Uh, Glimpse of Nature. Glimpse of Nature. Yeah. Uh, Next is the uh, Mono Green Elves. This has both Green Sun Zenith and Glimpse of Nature in it. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, it sometimes combos off with Staff of Domination, which is always really good to kind of kill someone out of nowhere with it. Yep. Um, next, we have Rug Ramp. This is, you know, generally actually pretty modern legal in the sense that its main two win conditions are Kiki Jiki, Splinter Twin, and or Scapeshift uh, Valakut, but Primeval Titan is really the main purpose of the deck. Right. And, <laughs> and wins from there. Uh, next, we have Dredge. Um, which is actually a little more legal than it was when I first built yeah, it. Yeah, Grave Troll, Grave Troll, uh, Grave Troll. is now back, which is wonderful for me and terrible for uh, people that don't like that, which is, <laughs> I don't know if that's anyone. Yeah, I don't know. Um, and then last, we have Birthing Pod. Um, also this one, illegal. Now illegal. <laughs> when I built it, it wasn't. <laughs> um, but, you know. I think we should just look to your decks for what's going to become illegal. <laughs> right, exactly. So it's 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 really just kind of a stroll down the modern band list uh, excellent. lane. <laughs> excellent, excellent. So uh, I have been working on my first wheel for the longest time time i've built a ton of decks that have all died in the in the fifth and sixth slots uh, whereas the initial slots have stayed relatively the same so the first deck i built was a blue black combo deck much like eric's combo deck it was incredibly over themed it played like seven or eight combos uh it had sub themes and o- over time it's been refined it, it plays all banned modern combos except for the dusk mail guild mage mind crane combo um the second deck i built in my wheel was 
a rug tempo deck, which is my favorite deck I've ever built. I hate that deck. It's my favorite deck, <laughs> and it's it's pretty legal. It plays very similar to like a Delver deck would yeah, play. Yeah, it's Rug Delver from Legacy, almost like a port. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't play... I, I When I built it, I realized that you couldn't build a format that existed on turns one and two like it does in Legacy. Right. Or even right, really right. turn well, You don't have to three. either. The consistency of the format lowers the fact that you need that to happen. I figured that I was going to build the... the, the uh, analogous deck that existed on turns three and four, and that's what I did, and it worked out very well. It plays GTA, um, maybe a couple other cards that are... Well, well, correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, Delver's not in the deck, No, Delver's right? not in the deck. So the one thing I liked about this deck and like and hate about it is that um, almost every single thing has either flash or is an instant. Right. And so yeah. almost every single time when you play a threat, it's at the end of my turn, and if, if it always makes me feel like you have counter magic, you have burn, like all this other great stuff in there. I think that the flash theme on that one is what makes it so strong. No, it's, it's definitely, uh, that's that's my best deck. It's taken time to get to that point. So I think the third deck I built was uh, a Metalcraft, sort of Metalcraft, the affinity kind of uh, Boros deck. That This deck is really, it's swung around, it's changed versions. I, I added all of the crazy power artifacts to it this last week to see if that worked. Uh, I'm still trying to figure it out. It's very swingy. It can kill you incredibly quickly. It plays all of the sorcery speed burn that isn't played in my instant speed uh, rug deck. Um, which is kind of an interesting way to split your burn package that I think worked well. Uh, the fourth deck is a ramp deck. I gave a suggestion to another player in our play group to build a deck that utilized all X spells. He never did it, so I built it. <laughs> um, um, it's awesome. It's This one over time has gotten really, really powerful. It plays like the six good Hydras or the seven good Hydras, and it tried to play all the Hydras. Now, when he says good, I want the collective internet to have quotation marks yeah good <laughs> i mean not modern good hydras but you know i mean there are a couple that are actually good miscutter hydra is a good card the primordial yeah, yeah, one yeah. doubles is a good card well. um yeah it's okay. <laughs> anyway in this format they're good uh this is similar to like what eric talked about with land destruction this is a deck that exists almost entirely on a two-mana accelerant into a powerful four drop um or multiple accelerants to like a super powerful six drop on turn four or something um and the decks five and six are a, a white-black control deck that started out wanting to be mono-white control, which was... I saw Travis Wu write an article about mono-white control in Modern using a bunch of, like, dirtily bad enchantment cards. I tried to do it in this format. It was very frustrating <laughs> and dirtily. I added black. It was okay. It became kind of a drain game thing. I've recently added blue. It now tries to win with, like, near-death experience, Sun Titan, and taking infinite turns a second chance. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. And uh, the last deck in the wheel is Mono Blue Merfolk. And this was the hardest slot to fill for me. I think I built six decks or seven decks in this slot that all got ripped to shreds. Um, the aforementioned Biovisionary deck was one of those decks. I mean, there was just a lot of attempts. But finally, you know, like, like Kessler said, uh, Tribal is kind of like a seventh color. I got to just play blue cards. And none of them were in use already. It plays all the free counter spells. It plays foil. It plays thwart. It plays force of will. Um, and see that—that that to me was the really nice designer touch you put on that deck. That it wasn't just a, a tribal deck. You had that kind of like my plan is to aggressively tap out for a, an aggressive stance, but still be able to for free counter that one or two crucial spells that would ordinarily just wreck an aggressive strategy. Yeah, it's pretty functional. Um, if I don't draw Force of Will, it's not as good. <laughs> but uh, it's still a pretty good deck. Well, I mean, so. you mauled this last Sunday. We had our last the, the last tournament, yeah. and you mauled to what three? To three and one. And no, you lost. Yeah, like I you I was at one life. <laughs> yeah, I was I was a point of damage it was away like from Dredge. Dredge can't lose. Yeah, he tried to. I, I had two lands, and he tried to strip mine one of my two lands. Oh. I, I played Ensnare, returning my lands to my hand to tap all creatures. There were no creatures on board, but I, but I saved my land. It was pretty. It was a pretty pro play. So anyway, that's probably a bad play. But um, let's uh, let's oh. move on. One card I forgot from mine, the really actually defining thing of blue-white that's banned in modern, Stoneforge Mystic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's really what... I mean, really, it came down to it sort of as a Geist Tron deck in uh, Commander, and then now it's a competitive blue-white control combo deck. Um, so before we kind of finish up, uh, you know, I always try to ask questions to Twitter while we're recording, so keep an eye out in the future, but we got some answers for this one. Uh, the question this time was, what modern cards would you like to see play more often? And I kind of brought it up in the idea is that this is a format that they could see more play. And when I read the cards that we got told, three of the, the options, three of them all have seen play in at least one or two of our all of our wheels. Uh, the first is by uh, from Vincent T, who is at this for Vincent. Uh, he said, Geist of St. Traft. 
And we were, yeah. we were just talking about guys it's to say really, 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 really good, good card. card. <laughs> I do think it probably will maybe even see more play in modern now that kind of the blue-red tempo deck is no longer the standard. But yeah, yeah no, it definitely sees play yep. in this format. Uh, Thrug, known as Thrug underscore MTGO, uh, has informed us that Life of the Realm would be way more powerful in modern, possibly would, in the future. I always say, Bronze and Magnon won a Grand Prix, the first modern Grand Prix, playing Life from the Realm. Right. Why do we not see more of that deck? Well, so, in our my two wheels, both of them, Dredge exists, surprising no one, <laughs> and Life of the Realm is cornerstones of both of those decks. Yeah, very, 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 very good. Um... And last but not least, Chris, who goes as Et Medi Midis, and I might be spelling that wrong, but uh, I will retweet him right now on Twitter so you can go find it. He wants to play Mystical Teachings in Modern. I've tried. Andrew yep. Brown tried. Andrew Brown played it for quite a while. Yeah, uh, eventually I want to bring Andrew Brown to go over his Mystical Teachings brew on yeah. his own version of Andrew Brown Brewing, but we'll, we'll get there eventually. Also, I mean, we've talked about many times, tutors are important. This is a tutor. Yeah, yeah, tutors are incredibly important format. Um, and so, to kind of wrap it up from this side, thank you guys for shouting us on Twitter. We are at the MM Cast for next week, or we'll ask a question at the end of the day. And the question for this day is, what cool card interactions do you want to see kind of happen that you don't normally get to see, or that you've seen that other people might not know about? So please tweet those at us, and we're not going to say some of our own. Yeah, um, I think going over so many deck ideas and searching searching the deck app... Um, you come across weird cards that you just like, you're like, oh, that works. Oh, that's such a crazy thing. How does, how have I not right. heard about this before? Yeah. Uh, and I think we've all had an aha moment with that. So again, let's start with you, Eric. Just, just briefly take us through one of the better ones you've come across. Yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a couple of the little gems that go through there. Um, just what, one. Just one. Yeah. Right out of time. Fuck. <laughs> Sorry. Um, just go with the one you mentioned. That's, that's a great yeah. one. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the one of the great little gems that I found out about was uh, Survival of Fittest plus Squee Goblin Bob. Oh yeah. And this just ends up being an incredible engine, incredibly cheap. Survival of the Fittest comes down on two, and for green you can discard a creature card, and so you can have any creature card and find Squee, and then immediately discard him to search out whatever other creature card. Essentially, it allows you for one green to put a creature card from anywhere in your deck into your hand every turn. It's incredibly powerful engine. Right, and. and- I mean, generally, this is why Survival of Fittest makes it into the drag decks I play is, is, you know, doing that with Golgari Grave Troll is kind of the same type of engine. And Squee, normally you don't see Red and Survival of the Fittest together, so it's something you don't normally think about, but it definitely is super powerful. Yeah, and it just came from two different eras, too. Right, right. Yeah, there's a lot of cool tricks you can do with that. What about you, Kessler? Uh, So mine is, so we've mentioned before, my second wheel, I have a Storm deck built. And when trying to figure out ways to kind of generate tons of mana, you know, the first place I looked at was uh, Mana Rocks. So Soul Ring, um, sure. all of the Moxes that Mana are illegal in the form Mana Crypt. Um, and I realized that both Hercules Recall and Retract, which are both cards that let you return all artifacts yeah. that players control or you control to your hand, generate a ton of mana because you play all these artifacts, storm off, and in the middle of storming off, you can return them and then replay them, sometimes doubling the mana you have available. Yeah. And it, it, it's such a strong card interaction that is so counterintuitive to what you normally think you'd want to happen. One of these cards is, you know, originally meant to be just like a save my artifacts from removal spell, and the other one meant to be an anti-artifact spell. It's meant to stop affinity or affinity-like decks from going off by returning all the artifacts they control to their hand. Mm-hmm. This one's letting me continue the storm off. Interesting. So uh, my my card interaction is one that I discovered while building my second wheel, and uh, I call this I call this deck finger on the trigger, and it comes from basically the 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 fading mechanic from Nemesis is the inverse version of vanishing. It's almost the same thing, but it states that when you can no longer remove a fading counter, there's one remove every upkeep. You sacrifice the permanent. And they've made a couple rares, one for each color. Uh, the two in question are Parallax Nexus and Parallax Tide. Uh, they respectively cost three and four. They're in blue and black. And one of them, three, allows you to remove X number of fading counters to exile cards from target player's hand. And when the last counter is removed, you can't remove one anymore. They get their cards back. The same is true in blue. It's a four-man enchantment that lets you exile their lands. When it leaves play, they get their lands back. I combine this with Sundial of the Infinite to be able to end <laughs> my turn in response to them getting any of their lands or cards back during my upkeep. I'll, I'll time walk myself if I'm exiling five of your lands or your entire hand for three mana, yeah. it seems pretty good. Uh, you can do it with Stifle or Trickbind, but Sundial is the most consistent permanent. So that's probably one of my favorite interactions I've come up with. How fun. So, you know, that's kind of it for this week. Uh, 
I hope you guys enjoy it. I apologize. It's kind of off the wall and not normally what we normally talk about. It's not modern specific, but you know, it is a competitive way to play a casual format. And you know, we have a sister podcast, the command zone, and they do all this commander content. And this is kind of our version of what they're doing where it's, this is the aggressive competitive tournament type of play style of commander. Um, you know, to find more information about Highlander Roulette and to also uh, look up the rules and see, you know, possible uh, cards that are legal in the format and kind of talk and discuss with people, you can go to highlanderroulette.blogspot.com. Um, that's kind of the, the new home for the format. That's where, you know, a lot of the future discussion will be, and you can kind of go to talk with us and other people about the format at large. Um, beyond that, remember to follow us on Twitter. Uh, I am at Kess Wiley. I am at Ben Bateman Media. And I am not on Twitter. Yeah, but you are on Instagram. <laughs> I am on Instagram, killer, killer you baby. Um, and as I said earlier, we have a sister podcast, The Command Zone. They are at The Command Cast, so please follow them on Twitter. Check their podcast out. It's really fun. Um, and we will see you guys next week. Yeah, or or there is a Highlander Roulette tournament that is going to be coming up very soon. Oh, true. Yeah. In a few weeks in the greater Los Angeles area. It's actually in Santa Monica. Um, and if you're interested in getting in on that, as always, tweet at us, tweet at the podcast, send us a, a Twitter message, whatever you got to do to get our attention, but you should show up to this thing. It's going to be super, super right. fun. It's at, uh, it's most likely at Heidi Hill comics. Uh, we mentioned it last week with Andrew Brown. Um, and if you go to the block spot for uh, Highland roulette, you'll be able to see information as it develops there. 100%. Nice. All right, Eric. Well, thanks for coming by, man. It was really fun talking to you. Absolutely. It was really fun. I didn't have fun. <laughs> Take care. guys. You guys are the worst. <laughs> All right. Thank you for your attention. For further inquiries, send an email to the MMCast at rocketjump.com. See you later, alligator.